You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Robert Wright. One thing I like about the conversations I have here on The Wright Show is that they help me think and write. They've informed the books and many of the articles I've written over the past 15 years. Now, lately, most of my writing has been for my newsletter, the Non-Zero Newsletter. It covers the kinds of topics you see on the show. Politics, foreign policy, psychology, philosophy, spirituality, how to avoid the apocalypse, things like that. So if you enjoy The Right Show, chances are pretty good that you'll enjoy the newsletter. It's free, and all you have to do to get it is go to nonzero.org and sign up. So I suggest that you hit pause, go sign up, and then hit play. Thanks. Hi, Ezra. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Oh, you know. <laughs> How are any of us truly doing? Wow, that's deep. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I can go that deep this early in the conversation. Let, let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Ezra Klein. Um, well known to many of our viewers and listeners. For one thing, you, in the distant past, you were actually on bloggingheads.tv. Uh, which I'm an OG the, blogging headser. You're an OG blogging headser, and then that's the uh, the video network this will appear on. Um, and um, in addition, as many people no doubt know, you co-founded Vox for a while. You ran it. You you have now uh, chosen to be editor at large. Um, you are also the author of this book, Why We're Polarized. That's deep too. Uh, that's a, a a pretty heavy question. Uh, great book. I learned a lot from it. Congratulations. This is a New York Times bestseller, right? Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. So, um, here's a question. So you actually, I think, got in a, a book tour under the wire. Is that right? Pre-pandemic before all I the book did. tours? My, my book tour, my book tour ended in, who I'm trying to even remember the the timing now. I think my book tour ended in January, and then I had a second leg that was supposed to happen in April. Okay, and that got totally canceled. Where I was going to go through a bunch of a bunch of other cities, and so um, I am really, really, really grateful the book came out not into this mall. I have friends publishing books right now, and to work for something on years, and then if it doesn't have a connection to this moment, to just like see it go into like this howling maelstrom of um, anxiety and, and, and COVID news, it's yeah. you, there's a lot you can control, but timing is not one of them. No, the last moment I remember like this is 9-11, actually. I, I knew people had books yeah. coming out, and like, um, is, or is your book about... Um, Islam or terrorism or at least airplanes or anything? And if no, um, you're out of luck. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, really enjoyed the book. Um, when you were out on tour and, and you were interacting with people, did you find that the idea that we're polarized kind of needed no introduction? I mean, it just it, these days it goes without saying. Yes and no. Um, the idea that we're polarized, or I would say actually the words we are polarized, that needs no introduction whatsoever. What that actually means, though, and having a rigorous definition of polarization, that needs a lot more introduction. To a lot of people, polarization is a synonym for bad or bitter or divisive or something like that. It's just like, we're polarized means things are bad. And that's not the argument the book makes. I don't think that's what polarization is. And so they're 
yes, like polarization as a like a word, a slur is out there, but I think as a like an analytical way of looking at politics, both for better and for worse, that takes more working through some of the ideas. Okay. So you you uh and I guess it needs certainly in this context with our audience it probably needs no introduction uh the idea that we are more more you know kind of tribalized you might say politically a lot of bitterness animosity and 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 there's some other dimensions that that come along with an actual close analysis of the phenomenon that we'll talk about but that's kind of what we're what we're up to here so you 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 approach it from more than one angle for uh, one is human psychology, human nature, our tendency to identify with groups, um, sometimes intensely with groups, sometimes to the point of disliking the other group. Uh, happily, as you point out, there's some fluidity as to which group we identify with. It's not like we have to be intensely devoted to our, ethnic- our ethnicity or any other particular kind of group, but we are groupish. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. Um, and then you you look at the political circumstances in which human psychology now finds itself and how those circumstances have come to be uh, in such a way as to lead to the um, to the polarization and and then you uh, you know in the, in the kind of second part of the book you look at various institutions that are mediating the phenomenon in some cases uh, intensifying it uh, and um, they include the media and so on. So, um, why don't you start out the way you start the book out, which is by asserting that actually there's a sense in which the presidential election of 2016 was not as surprising in outcome as some people think. There's actually, in a certain sense, there's less there to be explained than people think, or at least what needs to be explained is different from what people think. Yeah, this is in some ways the animating inquiry of the book, which is 2016 is both a weird election and a very normal one. Um, one thing I do at the, in the introduction of the book is I go through exit polls from 2004, 2008, 2012, and 2016. And these are four presidential elections with very different candidates who represent very different styles, culminating, of course, in Donald Trump, who's an extraordinarily different candidate in his style and also in many ways in his ideology, or at least in the ideology he presents in that election, right? We can talk about how he's governed, which is, I think, is a bit different than that, but comes in very much as a disruptive force to the Republican Party you know, talks about how George W. Bush was a disaster, how he prefers um, candidates who did not get, or heroes who did not get captured in Vietnam, um, I, I, you know, slandering John McCain. That is, that is like my favorite Trump line, by the way. I, when talking about John McCain saying, I like people who did not get captured, it, ju- it just, it just kind of captures everything about Trump that's amazing. Uh, but anyway, go ahead. He's very, he's very much who he is. Um, but the thing I show in that is that if you just line up the way different demographic groups have voted through these elections, you would not be able to pick 2016 out of a lineup. You would not be able to pick 2016 out of lineup on Hispanic vote, on um, uh, gender vote, um, on who Republicans support, on who Democrats support. It just looks like 2012. It looks like 2008. I mean, there are differences on the margins in every single one of these elections. But I think the question that it raises is, how do we have a politics such that a figure as unusual as Donald Trump can crash into it? And Basically, nothing happens in terms of who people support. Um, Republicans support the Republican, Democrats support the Democrat. You trade out some, you know, 
college whites for non-college whites um, uh, across the two parties. But it's a very, very normal election. Everybody wanted to talk about what a disruptive force Donald Trump is. But the thing that became really interesting to me is we have a politics that is very now resistant to disruption. We have a politics in which people are very held in place by how different the two parties are, such that if you don't like the candidate your party runs, which many Republicans do not like Donald Trump, the thought of the other party getting into power is just unimaginable. And this was not true at other times. If you think about the election returns with Barry Goldwater or George McGovern, you have huge amounts of crossover voting in these periods such that you can really run an extreme candidate as a party and get wiped out. Electoral wipeouts, we will see given the unbelievably extreme economic circumstances we'll be in in November, given what trends look like right now. But in even semi-normal times, electoral wipeouts at the presidential level have become a thing of the past, which is itself an interesting puzzle that I begin to try to look at a little bit in the book. Yeah. So um, in a sense, you could say we have gotten more partisan. We have gotten more systematically partisan. Um, and it, you could – there's a second aspect of that. We've gotten more negatively partisan. Um, well, negative partisanship is kind of a technical term. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But why don't you start off by describing, uh, a little bit the dynamics that, that seem to have been conducive to, uh, well, well, first of all, the evidence that party is, is a clearer predictor of, uh, what we'll do than ideology per se, and then get into kind of how that's come to be. Yeah, so I'll, why don't I start by talking about a study that I like, that I, I talk about a bit in the book. Um, and one thing I would just want to put a pin in for later is that a lot of this book is about something that I think you think about tremendously and have been a, a, a real leader in pushing others to think about, which is what kinds of ideologies, ideas, but also institutions and conditions create zero-sum behavior versus positive-sum behavior? And, and I want to come back to that because I really want to push on this idea that polarization, it functionally just means difference and disagreement. It, it really just means we are sorting across some attribute, be that attribute ideology or party affiliation or interest or demography around two poles. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. It can work out just fine. Um, it just often doesn't. And so I, I just want to come back to that. But so to give one study here, there's a, a fun study by um, Larry Jacobs, and I'm sorry because I'm forgetting the co-author, but it's of Donald Trump. And something that Trump does, which is a real gift to political scientists, is that he takes so many positions on so many different sides of issues that if you present people with things that he has said that you would not expect a Republican to say, they believe he said it. They don't think you're you're screwing with them. And so what uh, these two political scientists did was they gave a bunch of people, they kind of like took their issue positions, how do you feel about different issues, and then they would present them in the study um, conditions with Donald Trump either giving a liberal take on that issue, right, everybody should have health care, or a conservative take. And in all cases, these were real quotes from Donald Trump. And the thing they were testing here is they looked at, did people identify as strongly liberal or strongly conservative? And so the thing they're testing is, on some level, ideology should be an anchor. If you're a strong conservative, right, given what that is traditionally meant in American political life, small government, you know, limited government, constitutional respect, right, to, to, to try to frame it generously, and I know this is contested, particularly among critics of conservatism, but we all kind of know what it has generally stood in for. That should be for you an anchor 
against the winds of some leader or another, right? Against Donald Trump saying something liberal. If you're more conservative, more committed to the ideology, you should be more resistant to that. But instead, it's the exact opposite. The more conservative you are, the more susceptible you were even to a liberal message from Donald Trump. And so what you're seeing there is that oftentimes what poses as ideology is in fact an identity group. Conservative is a team that you belong to. Donald Trump is the leader of that team. You trust him, which by the way, we should talk about, is not a crazy thing to do. There's very little we can have firsthand knowledge about in the world. And so to some degree, trusting leaders is a very rational shortcut in a world far too complex for any of us to understand. But so you get pulled around um, because maybe what started as values for you has become trust and has become sort of a group. And if somebody becomes a leader of that group, you sort of go in their direction. So maybe you believed free trade was good a couple of years ago, but now you believe, uh, as Donald Trump does, that free trade is bad. And once I think you begin to fully appreciate how common these study results are, how weak a protection against politics and political group decision-making ideology actually is – a lot in politics begins to look different, both in terms of bargaining dynamics in Congress, but also in terms of what is happening in elections. And so understanding the group layer and group incentives and how groups interact with our institutions becomes really important to building a model of politics that is in any way predictive. Right. And, and you know, what's interesting is I think there are a lot of people who recognize the dynamic you're talking about specifically in the context of Donald Trump. In other words, they have remarked like, wow, these people will follow him wherever he, he goes. They'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll agree with whatever he says. And part of your point is that actually he didn't, that, did, that phenomenon did not burst on the political scene along with Donald Trump. It's been building yes. and growing a long time, right? Yeah. And so something I think is important here is in, I don't think about how to put this. So a story I'm telling in the book is the way the two call them political coalitions, because I, I think it's a little bit more complex in party, but the two mm-hmm. dominant political coalitions is called the red and blue coalitions, how they become so distinct over time. And the thing that's really hard to appreciate, it's only something I did not fully appreciate before, you know, I began working on these issues over the past however many years is in the mid-20th century, we have a, a sense that things were not that dissimilar because all the things are – the parties, the institutions are called the same things. You have Republicans and Democrats. You have liberals and conservatives, Congress, all of it. Um, so like at a 30,000 foot level, it all looks kind of the same except that these coalitions told you much less. So you had truly conservative Democrats in the Democratic Party, truly liberal Republicans in the Republican Party. Um, the demography of the parties was very mixed. They looked very similar. You had a lot of African-American Republicans for much of the 20th century for obvious reasons, right? The Republican Party is originally the party of Abraham Lincoln. The fact that the parties switch from the Democratic Party being the party of conservative, racist Dixiecrats to the party of Barack Obama and racial equality is a is a quite remarkable thing about American politics. You'll try to see it leveraged um, by uh, – what's a nice way to put this? <laughs> You'll try to see it leveraged by, let's call it crude commentators to say that like, oh, like the Democratic Party is a real party of racists because look what they did in the 1950s. Um, as if like nothing has happened since then. But understanding what has happened to change these parties is really, really important. So you have in this mid-century period parties that are much more similar. You have huge amounts of crossover ticket voting. So it's very, um, I think in the mid-century period, the likelihood that voting for the House Democratic candidate 
would mean you're voting for the Democratic presidential candidate, if I'm remembering this correctly, and, and people can check it in the book. I think it's something like 0.5. That's the correlation. Um, today, it is 0.98. So, I mean, the amount of ticket splitting has gone so far down in a really, really interesting way. And what's happened over time is that these parties become dramatically different. I mean, the Republican Party in 1976 in its platform says, look, there are people in our party who believe abortion should be available on demand. There are people in our party who believe it should be illegal in all circumstances, and we respect that difference of opinion. Or on the other side of the coin, if you look at immigration, I mean, the 1996 Clinton Democratic Party platform, it reads like Donald Trump on immigration. So the parties were mixed in a way that it was much more fluid for people to move from one to the other, and they didn't have to kind of like assign a deep group identity to it in the same way, and certainly not an ideological identity to it. But as you had a a sort of mid-century sorting that like sorted by ideology and demography, the parties just look really different, believe very different things now. Then like once you're in one or the other, very naturally you become more um, afraid of the folks on the other side and you become more willing to sort of follow the leader in your own party because the consequences both perceived and importantly real of the other side winning or of your side losing have gone way up. And that's true uh, in terms of like what policy might get made, but it's also true in terms of like perceptual group dynamics, which groups in society that you belong to are sort of raising in power and status and lowering in power and status. And you stack all this on top of each other and it's powerful, not so powerful that there's no room for individual choice or cognition, but powerful enough that it is a much more predictive set of forces than these were 30 or 40 years ago. Go. Okay. So you you get this uh, dynamic. And, and of course, there were a number of, uh, you know, actual events that were conducive to this. It wasn't just a, a, a continuous kind of tendency. I mean, famously, the Civil Rights Act, for example, uh, you know, LBJ supposedly said uh, Democrats have lost the South for a, a generation. But can I complicate that sure, for a sec, though? Because sure. Civil Rights Act is super interesting. I did not know this until I began working on this book, um, which is I knew the Civil Rights Act had been bipartisan. What I didn't know is that in Congress, a higher proportion of Republicans supported it than Democrats, which is because Southerners were basically mm-hmm. uni- uniformly Democratic and they were not supporting the Civil Rights Act. But I mean, that is a truly bipartisan piece of legislation. Yes, Lyndon Johnson is a president behind it and signs it, but you really don't get it without the Republican minority leader, Everett Dirksen, and huge amounts of Republican support. And just like, can you imagine something as divisive as the Civil Rights Act passing with massive bipartisan support, right? Like that both opposition and support are bipartisan. But the only other thing I wanted to add to that is, yeah, Lyndon Johnson says that. It takes a generation in some ways for that to come true. But the thing that seems really important is that Barry Goldwater chooses to run against it. And that's really key to this whole story, which is, and it's why the institutional level of analysis is important in a way. People really focus in this book on like the one or two chapters that are about psychology and group dynamics and things like that. And it's important and I get it. It's like a little bit more personal, but in some ways for me, what's more important is the institutional analysis. And what Barry Goldwater does, which reflects the dynamics of um, zero-sum electoral competition to come back to that, is that he says, okay, like... 
Lyndon Johnson as president is going to be the president having signed this bill who can run on it. So there's now this disaffected part of the Democratic Party and of the electorate furious about the Civil Rights Act, and they need a champion. And Barry Goldwater decides to become that champion, and he wins a bunch of states in the old Confederacy for the first time uh, for Republican ever. But like, that's a really important important moment that I think people don't give credit for. It's not just what Johnson does, but it's Barry Goldwater sort of naturally following electoral incentives to then, if Democrats are going to become the party of racial equality, well, somebody's going to be the party of like white backlash voters, like white, white identity politics, you might call it. And he sets the Republican Party on a path to becoming that as opposed to the Republican Party choosing a standard bearer who decides to embrace their role in the Civil Rights Act and keep that part of American politics mixed between the parties right now i i remember you know my earliest political memory is of the previous presidential campaign super vague but 1960 and my parents um you know we were they were both from texas and we were in texas at the time and i remember believe me my parents were not liberals were not progressives but kennedy was the good guy just because we lived in texas i mean it was it was you know the south was uh the south was was democratic in those days uh before the the civil rights act so um here's a question so so i guess uh you know you might expect uh, I mean, if you hadn't read your book and seen how much more partisan people have gotten in the way they, they process politics, but you might expect that Trump would be another realigning force, somewhat the way the Civil Rights Act was, right? I, I, I mean, because in truth, he divides the traditional Republican coalition, the, the, you know, there's a, there's a big, uh, at least influential, if not big in numbers, pro-immigration part of the traditional Republican um, coalition. And there are uh, working class whites uh, and other working class uh, people in, in, in the Democratic Party and so on. So you can imagine there, him having ushered in a realignment. And I guess maybe my question is, is the reason he didn't, or at least certainly hasn't yet, um, and of course, you know, people like Steve Bannon wanted him to do more of that. They, they he, Bannon, I think, wanted to tax the rich, um, and, and really, uh, exploit the potential cleavage, uh, within the Democratic Party that, that, uh, Trump might have exploited. But is your, you, you know, if you ask, well, why was one, uh, big political, uh, earthquake, um, Civil Rights Act, ultimately somewhat realigning in terms of uh, partisan coalitions. And why is it that another thing that looked like an earthquake, I mean, you know, Trump feels like an earthquake, but it wasn't realigning in party terms. Is it is it just basically affirmation of your thesis that we have gotten so partisan that, look, if he's if I'm a Republican or I'm a conservative and he's the Republican candidate, I'm going with him or or is it? more complicated than that does it have something to do with trump the person or or anything else it's such a hard question and the answer is i'm not really sure so one one question here is to imagine the counterfactual where donald trump cared enough about the sort of heterodoxies that seem to be implicit in trumpism or explicit in trumpism to have tried to fight the Republican Party on things it really cared about. So to, to your point about Steve Bannon at least being open to taxing the rich and Donald Trump having said things like, people like me are going to pay much higher taxes, let me tell you. 
what if he had really fought for that? Um, would he have been brought to heel by congressional Republicans who would have said absolutely not? Um, and he just would have folded, which is functionally like he didn't care enough to for that even to become an, a, a question. Um, similarly on healthcare, right? He said everybody's going to get taken care of much better than Obamacare. He said mm. he literally said on sixty minutes, "This is not a Republican thing for me to say, but I think everybody should have healthcare." Mm-hmm. And if he had actually tried to build on Obamacare, if he had tried to create a more expansive and generous but more nativist system, right? You could imagine something like um, uh, you can imagine a way of doing a health care bill that would have both expanded health care coverage, but made it more nativist and made it more pro-life, right? And done a couple other things like that would have really divided the Democratic coalition. What would have happened if Trump cared enough to fight those battles? I don't know. Like, I, I really don't. I think it's an interesting question whether or not the follow the leader dynamic and the sort of zero sum electoral incentives dynamic would have been enough. You can clearly see Trump having an influence on the party. Um, to me, what Trump is doing, and he is a reflection of something bigger going on in society, and you can see it if you look at YouTube politics and some of the other cleavages that are emergent, for a long time in politics, um, certainly post-Cold War, the parties have wanted at their elite levels to fight politics out on the economic cleavage, right? Did you sign Grover Norquist's anti-tax pledge or not? And Donald Trump emotionally, intuitively, psychologically, politically doesn't care. What he wants to do is fight politics out on a social demography cleavage. Are you comfortable with the way this country is becoming browner and um, more immigrant heavy? Do you feel good about the way the country is is socioculturally changing or not? And you see that in a lot of other places. I mean, I think if you look at a lot of the way politics takes place on Twitter, if you look at the way it takes place on particularly YouTube, you see a lot of people who are reacting, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book, to a pretty fast pace of demographic change by um, wanting to see more like right-wing people who want to see more compromise on the economic dimension so they're able to build a coalition better able to fight on the demographic dimension. And I think you would look at somebody like a Josh Hawley, a Tucker Carlson, and you're really seeing that, right? People who are saying, look, the Republican Party shouldn't be fighting to the death to protect low tax rates for rich people. It should be fighting to keep immigrants out of this country. It should be fighting to build the wall. It should be fighting to make sure that, um, you know, Christian, like basically like white Protestant Christianity remains the dominant, um, like ethno-national, uh, culture. And like White Shift by Eric Hoffman is, I think, a, a good, interesting book on the way this is playing out. I have disagreements with it, but the way this is playing out across both America and Europe, by the way. And so this to me is sort of what Trump represents, but is not himself strategic, determined, dedicated enough to do. He does this by tweeting about it um, and by like, this is what he talks about, whereas another leader might do this by actually trying to force a Republican Party to choose such that like people who don't want to choose with him have to end up in on on another side yeah so let's talk a little more about the the ethno-national part as long as you you brought it up um as we said you know people can identify with any number of groups in principle uh they can identify with athletic teams with nations with with uh hobby groups um you know uh a number of trump voters apparently identify 
with, uh, I guess you would say being white. I mean, one of your, one of the points of your book is that identity politics is everywhere. I, I mean, I, identity politics has, is a label that's come to be associated with, uh, you know, kind of liberals, progressives, and paying a lot of attention to what, uh, particular minority ethnic groups want or or kind of gender issues and so on but but one thing you're saying is that identity is 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 central to us kind of cognitively and it's central to politics and the question is in what sense now yeah why don't you talk a little about how ethnicity you know in your view has become an important part of identity among a a fairly substantial number of Trump voters. So something I talk about in the book is this idea of mega identities. As you say, to me, to me, identity politics, I think the, the way I put it there is that it's this very important lens. And in defining it so narrowly, we've blinded ourselves to what it is we actually need to see, which is that Identity is everywhere, not just in politics, but in life. Um, being American, being a sports fan, I'm Jewish, right? Like these are all things that have an identity dimension, a group dimension. And those identities, um, sometimes conflict with each other. There are identity, and these are called cross-cutting identities, right? Like imagine you're a union member, but also a Republican. Um, and then there are identities that stack on top of each other. Um, you're, you live in a, an urban center and you're a Democrat. Right. Those are things that reinforce each other. And what has happened over the past 50 years, and this is work that political scientists Liliana Mason and others have done at, at, at great length, is that we have developed many more stacked political identities. It used to be that because the parties were more demographically mixed, um, it just was the case that people were pulled in more directions. Maybe you were, as I said, sort of a union member and a Republican, but you lived in the South. Um, maybe you were also liberal, you know, like maybe you were Jewish. Like you could kind of go on and on like that. And it was, it was very normal for people to be on, like pulled in a, a bunch of directions. And we know that that really calms political animosity. Um, just a, a stat from a meta study I like is that in societies with the most cross-cutting identities versus the most stacked identities, civil war is 12 times likelier in the societies with the most stacked identities. So the more these identities are layering on top of each other, basically the more the outgroup becomes an intense outgroup. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know a lot of people like the outgroup, you know, big deal, right? You live in a city, you know, you're you're maybe a Democrat on the margin, but your friends are like Republicans and it doesn't matter that much. And, you know, you're a Southern evangelical white male and so on. And it's like, fine, Republicans are, you don't agree with them, but they're not the end of the world. Um, whereas if you're, you know, you live in an urban center and you're Hispanic and you're gay and you're, you know, and then Republicans become much more threatening, not just by the way, perceptually, but also given the way these identities act on ideological coalitions in the parties in reality, because the, um, the, public agenda begins to reflect like what the the party composition looks like. And so we have this term identity politics, which we tend to mean the political claims of traditionally marginalized groups. So, um, you know, Black Lives Matter rallying around police brutality issues, that's identity politics. But like gun owners who want an expansive definition of the Second Amendment, like that's just politics or CEOs who don't want to see high taxes because it demeans their success. Like that's just normal politics. But I think once you recognize that identity is a way we all experience politics and it's getting more intense and it acts on all of us, 
that's like a that's like an important beginning of wisdom. Um, and the worst thing that happens, uh, not the worst thing that happens, but something that is very blinding to people is they orient themselves against identity politics in a way that makes them think they are free of it, such that they lose the ability to have, I think, a really important level of like metacognitive humility about where their politics is coming from, such that it can be questioned a little bit and looked at. And Part of it is because if you if you define identity politics as intrinsically bad, then of course you can't be doing identity politics because you'd be bad. But if you define it um, just as something people do, right, then it's fine. Like, yes, like I have identity politics too. Like, let me say this very clearly. Like, I'm a I'm Jewish, and I'm not heavily practicing. I don't keep kosher. I use electricity on the Sabbath, right? Like I'm not a, I'm, I'm by, by a lot of measures, I'm not like a quote unquote good Jew, but I feel real, real Jewish. As soon as somebody says something anti-Semitic, I feel real, real Jewish. As soon as that identity is actually called up and challenged. And that doesn't mean I'm wrong to, it's just something that I have in me because of my identities that somebody who's not Jewish may not um, notice as much. So when I was, so when I was in junior high school, for reasons I still don't fully understand, it became common for kids in my school to use the term kiked. Um, as in like, oh, you're being a kike or you kiked me out of that money or something. And I don't know where it came from and I'm not here to do a forensics of it. Where This was in California? It, this was in Irvine, California. Public, um, and it was like a couple school. month thing. Yeah. A public school with a lot of Jewish kids. Um, you know, it was, you know, kids, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not here to, I don't know. Um, it affected and upset me in a way it didn't for whom that word had no meaning. And they didn't, on some level, most of them really mean it as like a, an actual anti-Jewish slur. But mm-hmm. of course, that's what it was. And so, like, I don't think the fact that I had an idea identity oriented reaction to that um was a bad thing um or similarly like i'm the son of an immigrant and i get very upset when people traffic a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric and i think that my identity is sensitizing me to something there that is important and that like is a deep and important part of my politics that i'm proud of so i just i want to say this very clearly that when i talk about identity politics i do it in a value neutral way just like anything else in politics it can lead you in good directions and lead you in bad directions but i think at its best people's particularistic experiences sort of are like a they are a machine that helps them generate or or a dynamic that helps them generate a view on the world and a view on the world can surface things that particularly majoritarian groups don't have to deal with don't see right um me too being a, a a very important example of this right that women were seeing something for a long time that was very easy for men to miss or men to ignore or men to play down or men to participate in Identity politics, to me, is not a good thing or a bad thing. Like anything else, it can lead you in good or bad directions. And people's particular life experiences and the particular experiences of groups often surface things that uh, majority groups don't see. And so it's important to follow up on that. Um, I think it has become common, at least in some corners of this discussion, to say that identity politics operates at some kind of, with some kind of oppositional re, uh, relationship to like factual inquiry or empirical inquiry. I don't think that at all. To me, what is often happening is that it is helping us see avenues for real empirical inquiry that people don't see. Science, politics, all of it, journalism, it has agendas, it has blind spots, it has herd behavior. And being thoughtful about what other what 
what other people are experiencing such that you can give that real sustained attention is important. And then if, you know, it doesn't go in the direction you want it to go, um, or it doesn't go, I'm sorry, I should say, um, if you do that inquiry and you don't find that there's anything there, so be it. But to close yourself off from it, you're closing yourself off to from one, a huge driver of human political and just general behavior. And then two, a really important way, and I say this as a journalist, of hearing about things that really deserve to be taken seriously and investigated and thought about because in a world this big we are all always missing things right and you know toward the end of the book you you kind of uh in the kind of solutions uh chapter i guess you you go through some kind of policy ideas that could make things better but you also and here thank you for mentioning me you bring up mindfulness and 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 one thing you um you call for is mindfulness of your own identity in a very kind of fine-grained sense, like try to monitor, yes. be aware of how your identity may be shaping, you know, even subtle emotional reactions you're having to things you see on social media, right? Yes, and this is a this is a part of the book that I wrote with some trepidation, knowing that for people who wanted to dismiss it, it would be like, oh, and then he ends with a call for meditation as opposed to, I don't know, like class revolution or something. Um which is not what I do. Uh, and I, I try to be very careful in the way I say it. I spoke to you for this because I, I very much admire your work in this space um, and in others. But the thing I'm saying there is that we have been taught to not see identity as a process in us. We've been taught to see it in others. It's very clear to us that everybody else is playing identity politics, but in us, it's not. And I do think it takes work, just like it does for any other mental process, to see when somebody is manipulating an identity in you. And we can talk more about the media chapters, but I talk a lot about the media, and obviously I'm part of the media, and something people are going to say in this is like, aren't you part of these problems? And like the answer is, in many cases, yes. Like, I'm trying to explore a system I'm part of, but something I say about the media is that as the media has moved online onto social media, a lot more has become built around identity activation. Like the, the, the killer insight of social media is that the thing that gets people to share is identity. And I talked to Jonah Preddy, the founder of BuzzFeed, in a section I think is really actually quite revelatory where this takes us fully out of politics, which I think is helpful for it. BuzzFeed initially starts as a sandbox, like a skunk works, to understand what goes viral on the internet. Before there's BuzzFeed news, before it ever has any political dimension, it's just like, what goes viral? Let's try to figure that out. And the big early hits all begin to recognize that identities are more numerous and fine-grained than people realize. So, like, he talks about 27 – he had this whole – there's this whole, like, range of BuzzFeed content that is, like, 20 – or, I'm sorry – X somethings only wise will understand. And that is like a perfect identity construction. So it's like 27 things only children of immigrants will understand. 14 struggles only left-handers will really know. 22 things you only know if you're an Eagle Scout. And there are like a million of these. And what they find, right, what BuzzFeed is discovering there, which is also something you end up seeing on Facebook and, and basically everywhere, right? It's also why quizzes are so popular. Quizzes are themselves like another like take a quiz, it says something about who you are, and then share with other people to see if they're like you or not. Identity is the slingshot to virality online. And I would say that something that has happened in journalism that I think is uh, important is that a lot of what 
what used to be called opinion journalism, I think has often now become sort of an identity form of journalism, which is to say that like you were at the sort of like, I don't know if it's mid eighties or mid nineties New Republic, but that's a period in opinion journalism when the idea is like what opinion journalism is supposed to be is just like provocative. And like the way it survives or, or, or falls is like, did it like create a conversation where people annoyed by it? Were it, but then as that, as the distribution network for that journalism becomes social media, it becomes sort of much more identity oriented, which isn't to say that you don't get a lot of interesting opinions or well-argued pieces or whatever, but it now spreads through this way of people either being like, yeah, like this shows my group is right about things or no, this shows that um, these people are assholes. And once you do that, it creates kind of subtly different incentives. Not to say there isn't a lot of the old style of opinion journalism floating around, because of course there is. But it is to say that I think if you really look at it, what a lot of some kinds of um, opinion and very much on Twitter, uh, like social media commentary is doing, is it's actually saying, this person is not like us. Mm-hmm. Like, this person is outside our circle and you don't need to listen to them or inside our circle and they're great. Mm-hmm. And um, like this kind of idea like resonates for uh, like people like us and, and it doesn't for others. And again, not quite saying that's good or bad. In many ways, it's not something I love, but it just is like it just is the way the technological business structure underneath a lot of media has evolved. And so like everybody all the way up to the New York Times does more of this than they used to. Um, and just like the incentives are different. And I think taking that seriously and trying to understand it as a system is an important worthwhile thing to do. Yeah, I mean, social media uh, are great organizers of tribes. And as you say, the incentives of people who run social media and want to maximize traffic are well, to cater to emotional reaction, generally you might say, but but once you've got the tribes, you're you're, you're catering to to tribal uh, emotions, to identity based emotions. And one thing I think is tricky about this, I don't love the word tribes and tend not to use it um, for some reasons, but it, to, to use groups maybe, one thing that's tricky about this is that it really can be based on real things. So I think something you could certainly say, like, look, like. My political opinions have never been hidden. I'm quite clearly somebody who's liberal, at least in the current composition of how American politics works. And so I write things that very much get shared in this way. And I write things that sometimes even tune in this way. And I do it um, when I do it because, like, I really think Donald Trump is doing bad things for the country. Like, I like it's not based on nothing. Um, but it also, like, fits into this world. And, like, there's an incentive to, like, play up some parts of it play down other parts of it and it's just it's a tricky thing um i am i do not think our discourse is healthier for having twitter in it i just don't um not to say i think i get a lot of emails about this because on my podcast i'm very critical of twitter like i get a lot of emails like why don't you just quit and you know a lot of politics happens on a um, on a platform I don't love. Like sometimes that's just life. I don't think you can uh, retreat from all of it. I do think it's worthwhile to see what the conversation is. But nevertheless, um, it is creating an incentive in this direction that it does over time change all of us. On the other hand, like as I was saying about polarization, these aren't just identity groups built on no reason. The parties are very different. They are doing very different things. When Donald Trump is out there using coronavirus as an opportunity to increase tensions with China, 
I think that is extremely dangerous for a hundred different reasons. And so like writing about it is on the one hand can like activate like a liberal anti-Trump resistance identity, but I also think it's important. And so like that's sort of part of the story of the book, that there's a reinforcement loop between some of these technological changes, some of these business dynamic changes, particularly in the media, um, the way the parties have become more different, and then the way identity acts on us psychologically that makes it very hard to get out of. If it were just like, stop being a jerk and like using identities for no reason, like fine, that's easy enough. But I, I am somebody who like legitimately believes my political, my political opinions are correct in these ways. And, um, but it also fits into this, like, it also makes a system it's part of somewhat worse, somewhat worse sometimes. Like, it's a very hard thing to be trapped in. Yeah. And the, and the way, the way technology, the ways technology does this, um, can be subtle. You mentioned, uh, I was at the New Republic in the late eighties, early nineties. When I went there, Mike Kinsley was editor. Then when he started Slate, I wrote for Slate. And I remember the day that he said to me, he came to me, it was like a news flash. It was like, this was, he had just discovered, he said, you realize that now we have information about how, how many people read individual articles. This was a revolution. When we were at the New Republic, you had no, the only kind of feedback you got on individual pieces was like at a cocktail party. So that, that actually mm-hmm. tended to be like elite level feedback. Okay. So like the editor here, some friend of his liked a piece you wrote. That's good for you. It's doing well in elite circles. The only, uh, kind of grassroots traffic stats you had was how well the entire issue of the magazine sold. Might bear on the cover, whatever, but anyway, uh, but, but it didn't give you fine grained information. And what Mike said was, I think I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to give this information to authors. I think it would be bad for them to have this kind of feedback. And I think he's been largely borne out. I mean, you mentioned the New York Times, which of course is not social media. It's just media, but it's also not the old New York Times in terms of how finally the incentives to generate traffic you know, can be, uh, can, can guide the writing and the headline writers and everything, right? But, but let me take the other side of the argument now for a minute and be so liberal I can't take my own side in argument. Um, which is to say that I think there was a lot of problems with the old equilibrium too. Like my criticism of that era of New Republic, um, and there's a lot in it that I, you know, still respect and admire is that it was sort of, it could become a game. Um, there was a lot like Kinsley is and Slate in that period, right? The Slate pitch is like the height of counterintuitive journalism. And it was often like, oh, can you say something that is offensive enough that you're going to like, or weird enough that you're going to get a reaction from your elite friends? And people at that level often treat it like a game, like it's a fun debaters club. Oh, what an interesting perspective. And if that interesting perspective is doing tremendous damage to people, eh, you know, like it's a good conversation to have provocative, right? Like, as if provocative was some sort of wonderful word to attach to anything. I mean, I don't pride myself as a husband on being provocative uh, or, as, or as a friend um, in, in that way. And so it's like everything has its good and its bad. And I think like one good thing is that like you really do get pushback now from groups that were abstractions, right? You got letters, but oh, who cares about the letter writers? That wasn't immediate. It didn't grab you. And now it's like you look at the experience, say, of, you know, people at the New York Times op-ed page or at Vox or wherever, right? It's like, it doesn't matter. And everybody's constantly furious about, you know, Twitter mobs that are treating them unfairly. And on the one hand, they often are being treated unfairly. And it does 
to some degree, I think, curb positions people are willing to take, at least if they don't have a very confrontational personality. And on the other hand, it um, also forces you to think, like, is being super counterintuitive about reproductive choice, like, a good thing to do? Like, is, um, are, like, am I missing something that is going to get pointed out that is, like, going to like infuriate people at me. And so I want to be a little bit careful because I don't think like the good old days were the good old days either. I think what you had was there were benefits to having gatekeepers and institutions that were stronger, but there was also losses. And I think that, you know, the loss dramatically was that um, the audience and a lot of the people being written about were abstractions. And so it kind of became about what sort of elite level feedback you get. But just as Twitter feedback is not real life and it's does not represent uh, correctly a lot of what like reality looks like. So too, elite level feedback is definitely not real life, and it doesn't represent a lot of um, yeah. uh, a lot of who people are talking about, and a lot of very important issues got missed for a very long time. Yeah, no, that's true. In fact, you mentioned letters to the editor. Well, it wasn't just that you know, kind of the way they came in or how often they came in. The other thing about him was. You could ignore them. If they pointed out a glaring factual accuracy in, in, in a piece, you could just ignore them. And I saw it happen at the finest publications, The Atlantic, you know, uh, now that's, you know, new media kind of made that a lot less feasible. And I think that was good. I've got to say though, and you know, in general, I'm just, I'm just agnostic on whether the change has been for the better or the worse on balance. I, I don't really have a view. Um, one thing that bothers me, about the atmosphere of polarization is that I don't think people get as much of that kind of vetting as they were getting for a while. I mean, in other words, when the internet first showed up, it seemed like uh, columnists were being held to account in a way they hadn't before. You couldn't just casually assert something that wasn't true. You know, somebody, a commenter would say something, whatever. It seems to me that now uh, the kind of, you know, the, the pro-Trump, uh, you don't like the word tribe. I mean, I, and I, and I know why I've kind of written about the pros and cons of the, uh, of the, uh, you know, the, uh, of the term and, and the potential offensiveness of it. But in any event, the, the pro tribe, um, the pro Trump say, say group and the resistance, they, I, I see them now so wed to their group that I see manifest uh, falsehood being perpetuated within each group, uh, within the resistance, you know, uh, in ways that I almost think might have been less likely to happen 12, 15 years ago before things were so polarized. I've been thinking about this, and, and let me turn the question to you. When I... This feels right to me, right? Like intuitively, like I'm living through this. I'm living through the age of MAGA Twitter and whatever else. And, and, and it feels right. And I definitely think if you're comparing it to like, there's like this golden period kind of, you know, in the aughts where a lot of us were and blogging happened. And it was like, on the one hand, you were weakening the gatekeepers, but on the other hand, it was a kind of real argumentative engagement happening in public. And I think you move to social media and it's not really an engagement. It's a kind of constant boundary drawing between groups, right? Like, I, I don't think people are trying to convince each other. They're trying to say to their followers, like, it's like, it's dunk oriented discourse and dunk oriented discourse is by nature non persuasive, right? It's persuasive to those who already agree and, and not to those who don't. So I'm I'm as nostalgic for the blogosphere as anybody. That's where I get my start. But 
in the long sweep of American history, even the recent sweep of American history, I do wonder whether it was ever any different, whether we did have less fake news at other times. Um, you know, I always use the example that the Protocols of the Elders of Zion were printed in Henry Ford's newspaper, um, the Dearborn Independent, but not just that, right? You had the John Birch Society, you had all kinds of governmental lying that was um, more effective, certainly, I would say, than it is today. Like right now, Donald Trump can sort of like get his people to take kind of almost anything at the very least seriously, if not literally. Um, but, you know, you go back to things like Gulf of Tonkin and others, and there was like much more capacity for government to shape like the consensus reality, right? Sure. Which is different, of course, in reality, reality. And so I just don't know. Um, I, in some ways I feel much more sure-footed pointing out what are problems today. And I agree that all those things are problems. Then I feel comparing them to how serious the problems of yesterday were. And this is true across all kinds of things. Like I don't think American politics is as divisive as, um, or at least American political arguments are as divisive as they were in the mid 20th century. I think that's wrong. I think that they are sorted by party in a way that has very distinct and problematic, uh, implications for our system, right? And paralyzes it and makes it so we can't govern. But I mean, you know, you had a lot more political violence in the 20th century than you do now. You had, you know, a lot more riots and political assassination. And um, the things we were fighting over were much more foundational and abhorrent, like segregation. And so there's a... I'm always very careful to the extent I have any kind of optimism at all, particularly at the end of the book. It more has to do with the belief that the past was a lot worse than our stories admit than that the present isn't that bad. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, I agree. On the one hand, I mean, I lived through, you know, the, the pre-internet, not only pre-internet world, like pre-cable TV world, you know, so the three networks. Oh my God, you did? How <laughs> yeah, old are you? I survived. Oh, <laughs> Old enough. Um, I mean, I remember the six. I was living in San Francisco in like 1969, and 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 you're right, things were wild. It's also true that the fact that there were only three network news. Um, I mean, I'm happy to say I was a child then. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't like 30, but. Um, the uh you know the it, there was a cohesive effect exerted by the fact that there were just three networks they were all saying the same thing Th- there's some benefit to that on the other hand what it meant was that kind of until walter cronkite flips on the vietnam war right i mean you you have to get this the elites a uh, few elites to slowly start getting the picture before a calamity like vietnam finally starts to lose political traction so i i, I totally i totally take your point that um that that uh there were pros and cons and always will be um so let's uh we 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 don't have a ton of time left so let's turn to get back to some other aspects of the book you you uh you know you mentioned we've mentioned identity uh and 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 the kind of identity politics that helped trump get elected we've mentioned um you know its effect on cognition uh, you get into this, this, uh, you use the term identity protective cognition. That's in a way, uh, uh, you know, people have heard a lot about cognitive biases, in, including in particular confirmation bias. I, I, identity protective cognition is, is in that kind of genre of, of, um, psychology. It, it, it it's a form of, uh, one way of describing certain kinds of biases. Um, why don't why don't why don't you quickly mention just the, the, the there's one 
example that fascinated me. I, I, I do think most people know what confirmation bias is, but there's a different kind of motivated reasoning you mentioned where um, people's actual ability to follow logic, to do math, can get better if that task is in the surface of, in the service of their kind of prior partisan commitments, right? You know the study I'm talking about? Yeah, so this is a study by a Yale law professor named Dan Kahan and, and a number of co-authors. And what they do is they give people a brain teaser. And the brain teaser is designed such that if you're not quite good at math, you're going to get it wrong, right? It is it is designed to mess you up. And the way the brain teaser works basically is that in its initial form, it is asking a tricky question about whether or not a skincare cream worked. And so, you know, they give that to people and it shows exactly what you would expect. The better you are at math, the more likely you are to get it right. And then they do the exact same question, but they change functionally the nouns. And now it's about whether or not a gun control policy worked. And here a, a funny thing happens, which is that how good you are at math stops predicting whether or not you get it right. In this case, it is, um, do you agree with it? So for people who are not good at math, you just kind of don't get it right. But if you are good at math, you really get it right if you agree with it. But the difference between the people who agree with the thing ideologically and don't, who are really good at math, is bigger than the difference um, in getting it right, is bigger than the difference between the people who are not that good at math. Because if you're good at math and you want to get the right answer on this and you're very motivated to do it, but if you are confident in your math skills and you don't want to get the right answer, you don't check it, right? You you go with the kind of like intuitive thing that it is telling you that you are right. And there's a million, this is not some weird finding to be very clear. Like there's a million studies going back on this all the way back to the forties and fifties, like when they would give um, people op-eds on the death penalty. And it takes you longer to read an op-ed you disagree with because your mind is coming up with counter arguments in real time um, than to read an op-ed you agree with where you just kind of skim over. You're like, yeah, that looks good. That looks good. That looks good. I'm done. Um, you know, so-and-so is a genius just like I am. And this is all very intuitive. Um, there's another study I talk about where they paid people on Twitter. I think this one's actually pretty interesting. They paid people on Twitter to let the researchers insert um, voices from the other side into their Twitter feed. And the question is, would this moderate people um, or not? And so they took their issue positions beforehand, and what they found at the end of the study was it didn't. Um, for conservatives, it made them more conservative. And for liberals, the effect wasn't statistically significant, but to the extent it had any directionality at all, it made them more liberal. So this idea that um, being exposed to the other side or just like having a lot of data and information at your fingertips is going to make you more moderate or something, it's not how it actually works. Uh, that gives us more intellectual artillery to find the answers we already want to find. Mm -hmm. So all this kind of stuff is presumably associated with the intensity of your of your group commitment, right? Not just the fact of it, but the intensity of it. And yes. we, we talked about, uh, we, we use the term zero-sum and non-zero-sum. Um, I've always thought that a big determinant of the intensity of your group uh, identification was... To what extent do you perceive the relationship with other groups as zero-sum? Do you see them as a threat? Mm -hmm. Do you see the two of you as competing for a finite resource? Uh, if so, that that sends you into a particular kind of cognitive mode. 
Um, and if not, uh, quite, it can be quite the opposite. If you perceive the relationship as non-zero something, I mean, this was a big, a big theme in my book, um, The Evolution of God. I, I argued that if you want to know why religious groups sometimes emphasize belligerent scriptures and sometimes emphasize scriptures that counsel concord and understanding, a fundamental determinant is whether they look at the other religious group and see them as uh, in a zero-sum or non-zero-sum relationship. Now, does this, to what extent does this uh, kind of overlap with your view? When you look specifically, for example, at the Trump coalition and, and at the kind of identity politics that drives it, to what extent do you see it flowing from ze- perceptions of a zero-sum relationship with other groups? I I do. I, I So I think this is where an institutional level analysis becomes really important. So something I say in the book is policy is positive sum and identity is often zero sum. Um, and that's often because group power is zero sum. And here I'm including as identities things like Republican and Democrat and liberal and conservative, right? Identities can have, you know, ideological or demographic content um, or religious for that matter content to them as we all know. But so take something like the Affordable Care Act, which I, I, I covered very closely. That begins, and there's a tremendous amount of positive summness in the way people are experiencing that. So it begins, and you have Chuck Grassley saying, you know, the individual mandate is something that um, 80 or 90% of Republicans agree on. Uh, and he says that, like, we all agree on about 80% of this bill. And there's all these hopes that you're going to get a big bipartisan vote because, like, here it is, Democrats have, like, t- gone away from single payer and they're building on the model that Mitt Romney, a Republican, did in Massachusetts. And so, like, couldn't we all come together? And I used to be in all these rooms, right, where policy experts on both sides would, like, talk about the ways towards a, a bill they could all agree on. And then I watched as that process wore on and it became perfectly zero sum. And I've seen this in issue after issue after issue. And what happens is that, yes, on policy, I can almost always sit down with someone who disagrees with me and come up with a way to build something that we both would like better than the status quo. I mean, go look at the way Singapore does things where they typically just like, they implement policies that include insights at the extreme level from the left and the right, not like mushy middle compromising, but like the real serious, like what did the left think? What did the right think? Like, let's do both. And they just do it. But here what happens is that at some point the question becomes who's going to win the election, right? If Barack Obama passes the Affordable, the Affordable Care Act with 30 Senate Republican votes and 50 House Republican votes and goes around the country like bragging about that, he's going to win the election and Democrats are going to win the election. And I say in the book, like the structure of American politics is such that – so imagine you work in an office and you – hate your boss <laughs> uh, and your boss cannot complete his projects unless you help him. Now, if you help him, your boss may get a promotion and worse than that, you may even get demotion or lose your job. But if you don't help him, your boss may get fired and you would get his job. Now add in that like your friends and coworkers also hate your boss and all of you think what your boss is doing is bad for the world. Mm-hmm. Are you going to help your boss? And the answer, of course, is no. But that is just literally the structure of American government, right? You have a system where majorities do not typically have the power to govern. Uh, 
where they are they require very high levels of compromise and even consensus from the other side in order to get big things done. If the majority does get something done, the public will reward them for it, particularly if it is bipartisan. And then they will like run and win more power and people on the other side will lose their job and lose their seats and not be able to get back into the majority. And then like why should the other side help them? And there are interesting answers to why this ever worked in American politics. It seemed to revolve around primarily two things. One is sort of the ideologically mixed political parties we talked about earlier, and also the fact that for almost all of American political history, politics was not very competitive. So you had in the post-Civil War era a very dominant Republican Party for a very long time. In the post-Great Depression era, a very dominant Democratic Party for a very long time. And then we are living now through the single most competitive period that has ever existed in electoral American politics, where power, particularly in Congress, is switching back and forth constantly. So there's an argument made by scholars like Francis Lee that cooperation was easier to do when the minority party did not believe it had a realistic chance of taking back the majority, because then that feeling that if they just make the majority fail, they can take back power, it wasn't there. They couldn't. And so, like, the incentive was, well, if the only way to be involved in governing is to cooperate with the majority party, then you cooperate. But if you can obstruct the majority party, and that might make you the majority in two years, well, then you do that, of course. And so it is structural, in part, that the incentives come down this way. If the incentives were built differently, you could have parties that really disagreed, but either the majority party could just govern and you know pass its own agendas, you can't have any parliamentary parties. Parties, or maybe there's some mechanism that forces the parties to compromise at the, you know, and there are like very severe consequences for some reason if they don't. There are different things you could do here, but the way we've done it, it incentivizes the minority party to oppose. And when the minority party opposes, nothing can get done. And so, like, of course, you have the kinds of but not just zero sum outcomes we currently have, but like paralyzed outcomes we currently have. And like, that's a function of the rules of the institutions and competitions that we have chosen to set up. Yeah. The, um, and I guess this leads us and it probably should, given the fact that I know you've got to go in about, uh, 10, 10, 15 minutes or so. Um, two solutions, right? Um, the, uh, you you don't you don't purport to have a magic uh all purpose prescription but you in the final chapter you talk about some things that you think might help what is your and 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 we alluded to to you know kind of changes we might try to encourage at the individual psychological level and maybe we can talk a little more about those but at the level of kind of institutional change uh whether in government or in party um, and and we should quickly say that 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 one of the parts of the book that I found most interesting was how the decline uh, of party power has in effect been a radicalizing force, been a polarizing force, and of course Trump in a way perfectly embodies this. His his party, if they could have stopped him, they would have. Uh, they didn't, and he's a polarizing figure. Um, but uh, what what is kind of your favorite? you know, possible institutional change. I mean, my single favorite change, which would act across a variety of dimensions is small D democratization. Um, I will simply say that if this country were actually democracy in the way most people mean that term, which is to say that um, one vote uh, counts equally to another vote and the politicians who win the most votes win power, 
Donald Trump would not be president. And I think the faction that supported him in the Republican Party would have been blamed and weakened for losing a winnable election. Like, I think Marco Rubio would have won the popular vote, um, whereas Donald Trump lost it, as George W. Bush did in 2000. But it's entirely possible um, that we've already had two of five presidential elections since 2000, won by the loser of the popular vote. Totally possible that twenty six, the twenty twenty might mean we have fully half of presidential elections since two thousand won by the loser of the popular vote. I think it's a real bad incentive structure. The same, of course, is true on the Senate, which is like hideously undemocratic, and that has also led to the Supreme Court reflecting that sort of counter democratic against small d democratic impulse. Um, if the Senate was controlled by the party that had won more votes in Senate elections over the past three cycles, Democrats would be in control. And my point of this is not actually, and I want to be very careful here, that we should implement a set of reforms such that big D Democrats always win elections. It's that I think the incentives for parties to craft broadly popular and inclusive agendas are served by actual democratic governing regimes. And so the Republican Party is very competitive as an institution and very much can be when it is competing for a majority of votes. And like, look around the country, right? Charlie Baker is an incredibly popular Republican governor of deep blue Massachusetts. Um, Larry Hogan, same thing in Maryland. Governor uh, Mike DeWine is unbelievably popular in purple Ohio uh, because he's doing a good job as governor. Um, but right now, the Republican Party nationally has found a path to sustained power using minoritarian uh, political strategies. And I think it's really dangerous because it also creates a long-term incentive to then use that power to bolster your own power, to right, to disenfranchise people, to bring down Supreme Court rulings that make it harder to vote or harder for unions to organize or whatever it might be. And so to me, like if I could do one thing, I would small d democratize the system so that both parties were exposed to what the public actually wanted. That's not to say you shouldn't have protections for minority rights and other things, but I would get rid of the filibuster. I would get rid of the electoral college. We're not going to get rid of the Senate, but if I could, I would. Um, you know, I would make voting easier. I would make, you know, voter registration automatic. I would just try to make it so that more Americans had a voice and that voice counted for everybody more equally. Again, would that fix everything in the system or would it like mean the end of polarization? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But I think that a world in which majorities could win power routinely and then govern once they won power. And so the problem, so the issues there are like, do we like what the majority did? And if so, we bring them back. And if not, we vote them out. I prefer that world of pretty clear lines of accountability, of small d democratic accountability to the current world um, in which accountability is mixed. And mostly people are arguing about why things didn't happen, why bills didn't pass. And it's very unclear to the public, like why nothing ever seems to happen, even though they keep making these big changes in government um, because the last group failed and the next group promised that they would, you know, like succeed um, in their place. Yeah, so um, I guess a couple of uh, – I can imagine a couple of replies. One is and – you, and you kind of alluded to this. I mean I can imagine conservatives saying, well, as it happens, a number of the uh, reforms you like would at least now help Democrats. Y- your argument seems to be that, okay, n- that might be – now an electoral college reform uh, might help Democrats, but in the long run – uh, it's bad for for both parties to have these very. I think it's bad for the country. I I would just say very straightforwardly that that's a terrible indictment 
of the Republican Party and the strategy it has chosen. And conservatives should work to craft an agenda that is broadly popular. And if that was the only way they could win power, I think they would. Now, if like the conservative view, and by the way, I think that because this is the way things are structured, there is a real impulse right now in the Republican Party that is strengthening, and you might call it a re-strengthening, depending on your read of history, to turn against democracy. Um, I had a great conversation on my podcast with George Will, where he's just really saying this pretty directly, that like the conservative impulse is counter-democratic. Um, we should have much more aggressive judicial review. He's saying he thinks it's a real problem that Republicans Republicans have used the term activist judges as if it's a bad thing. Um, I think that if you look at a lot of what conservatives are starting to say, they are embracing a uh like a belief that democracy itself is bad because it poses an electoral threat to at least the kind of thing that has been working for them. Um, I'm more optimistic maybe than they are that there is a Republican sort of dash conservatism that could win um, if it had to. But whether that's true or not, like, yes, I do not believe that we should not have democracy in this country because it might be bad for conservatives. And if that's what conservatives believe, I think that is something that requires some real self-examination. Okay, the other reply is uh, just kind of an irony in a sense, which is, uh, as you noted, uh, weak parties, uh, as you argue in the book, it may not be clear to listeners, but uh, weak parties are conducive to polarization and 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 kind of more more radical views in some ways at both extremes. Um, and, and to put a finer point on this, if Let's assume we did uh, democratize uh, in, in a way that that uh, gave both parties a strong incentive to appeal to a majority, and that led the Republican Party to think that Donald Trump was not a winning ticket, which in fact he wouldn't have been if the popular vote had prevailed. But for the party to act on that, you would want the party to have power during the nominating process, presumably, and some people would take that to mean smoke-filled rooms, and and I personally think there's something to be said for smoke-filled rooms, but in any event, there is this irony that the democratization of the nominating process seems to be, in some ways, under some circumstances, conducive to polarization, right? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I wouldn't even exactly call it an irony. I would just call it a complexity, right? Like some things in life are just complex and you have to do one thing at one time and another thing at another time. Um, I do talk a lot about the way primary processes have changed. And I think it's important to say that I don't think primary processes are small d democratic. Um, they are incredibly disproportionately representational of like the most engaged part of the party. They're a way, what we have done there is highly value or weight the most intense factions of the party. Now we have like moved it towards the party, like activist space away from maybe what you would call like the elites or the party officials or the party structure. And so fair enough, but I don't, I'm not sure I think it's great. Um, I'm, you know, were the decisions made in smoke-filled back rooms better or worse? I don't know. I think it's hard to say. I don't think we're going back to smoke-filled back rooms, so I think it's a little bit of a moot point. But I do talk at some, not 
not a huge length, but I think it is notable in the book, or I'm sorry, sorry, I talk in the book about how it is notable that after 2016, where Democrats watch the weakness of the institutional Republican Party lead to the takeover of Donald Trump, who they loathe and think is dangerously unqualified and a demagogue, that at the same time, what they do is they weaken the superdelegates in their own party um, because of the sort of aftermath of the Bernie Sanders challenge in 2016. Um, what Democrats do is they make it so superdelegates cannot vote on the first ballot. So you would need a, a candidate to fail on the first ballot for there to be any superdelegate um, role at all. And then interestingly, by the way, in like 2020, the Bernie Sanders campaign kind of flips on the superdelegate issue and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you know, if, like we need superdelegates, then that's the way to win. Um, people are very um, instrumental about this. Uh, but I think, I think the issue is that we... We have enough of a small D democratic like set of values that pushing things in a less democratic direction is generally, although not always a non-starter, certainly um, on the left. And so like you're just a little caught there, but yeah, like I don't, I think that there were good things to some degree in parts about gatekeepers. And I, you know, we were talking about this in the media um, part of our conversation too. I would not go all the way back there by any means, because there are also a lot of terrible things about gatekeepers, but having, I guess just like some capacity to hold somewhat intention ideas at the same time, I think is a good thing. I think the world isn't simple and it never gave us a guarantee that it would be. Okay. Final question. And, and this gets back kind of to the, the mindfulness thing. And, and it, it's partly in the form of, uh, kind of advice I'd like from you, I guess. So, um, I put out this, uh, non-zero newsletter whose contents can be found at nonzero.org. It's, it, it actually evolved out of a newsletter I put out called the Mindful Resistance Newsletter. And there the idea was that the resistance to Trump was not mindful enough. It was too reactive. For its own good, it was too reactive to uh, what he, you know, things he did. It wasn't circumspect enough, and so on. And I was kind of trying to cultivate um, enthusiasm, I guess, about the idea of of being mindful and careful and not retweeting things until you've really inspected. Uh, you know, the, what it is they're linking to, although I still uh, make that mistake myself. It's, 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 it's a hard, it's a hard thing to, uh, execute on perfectly. But, but, um, there's a sentence in your, in your book toward the end. Our identities are manifold. And then you say, Republican is an, is an identity, as is Democrat, but so is fair-minded or Christian or curious or New Yorker. It would be great if we could get people fired up about, fair-minded as an identity belonging to the fair-minded you wouldn't say tribe but the fair-minded team the fair-minded this is what we take pride in you know we're a growing movement of people who take pride in how careful we are on social media how hard we work to understand the perspective of people on the other side and blah 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 one thing i discovered is it's very hard to get people excited about about being a member of that kind of team, right? I mean, you just you just see who's amassing the huge Twitter followings. They're the people who are doing exactly the opposite. They're taking the cheap shots. They're taking what the other side says out of context and ridiculing it and so on. So like do you how hopeful can we be of of 
of, of change at this level. I mean, I mean, again, there are all kinds of places to try to intervene. And, and I want to emphasize there are uh, a number of suggested interventions in your book and people, people should read it, interventions we haven't had time to talk about. But at this one level of kind of personal psychological change, um, how optimistic do you think we can be? I have a ton of thoughts here and let, let's take some time on it. Cause I actually want to ask you things about this too. Um, but one, I think you underestimate how first popular and important some of these identities already are and how successful people are in leveraging them um, all over the spectrum. So we can come back to the mindfulness, mindful resistance newsletter, which I liked. I actually will say, and you know, I've been a fan of this newsletter from its inception. I, I preferred that um, structure to it. I like both because I, I like your writing, but um, but I sort of liked what was distinct about that. But I do think the problem with mindfulness, and I faced it using it in my book, is that it is something that people just – it's like a category error to a lot of people, right? It sounds like you're demanding something soft um, mm-hmm. when you're dealing with something hard or something spiritual when you're dealing with something earthly. Or I think people like have trouble with like the, 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 the category blurring there in a very specific way. But the New York Times, for all of its like incredible power and potency and tremendous journalism and, you know – it is also an identity, which is why a lot of people subscribe to it. The Economist, I'm um, certainly like, I remember when I was in college, like kids subscribe to The Economist, not because they read it, like the thing The Economist does is pile up on your bookshelf a lot of the time or The New Yorker, but because it's an identity of a kind of like urbane cosmopolitan for The Economist, it's worldly for The New Yorker, it's literary and thoughtful and, you know, and tons of people and players work off of this kind of thing all the time. You know, you talked about what happens on Twitter. Twitter is a little bit of a shit show um, for its own particular reasons and particularistic reasons. But Barack Obama is still the most popular politician on Twitter, significantly more so than Donald Trump or anybody else. Um, Joe Biden did for all of his um, flaws or failings win the Democratic nomination. And he's a very sort of compromise and consensus oriented politician who managed to win despite not being in some cases like that seemingly that strong uh and and so like there's just i think you actually underestimate a little bit of the power of these kinds of identities that are already operating the podcast realm is another place where i think you see a lot of this i think it's working out pretty well for a lot of podcasters like i'd say myself included Mm -hmm. who in the podcast space really emphasize like a, like an intention towards dialogue, towards listening, towards a kind of openness. Now it's not the only thing that works there and we can all come up with counterexamples and some of the counterexamples are very popular, but I'm more optimistic on this than I think you are um, already. That said, I think the thing that is really hard and that I struggle with and I would love your thoughts on getting even away from the mindfulness language is towards like, is towards having a less dualistic approach to politics. Um, which is to say to recognizing sometimes that things that feel like winning in the moment are actually losing and that particularly the way politics is structured. And if you want to have a persuasive politics, that is not going to look like the kinds of conflicts that are emotionally satisfying to have. Um, uh, maybe a simple way of putting this is that I have a big Twitter following to, to go back to Twitter. Maybe I have 2.5 million followers, which is um, like very big and on some level, I guess, great. 
And on the other hand, I don't really do much with Twitter these days. And one reason is that I've come to think that winning there would be losing. Ezra, by the way, if you want to some- trade, if you want to trade accounts, I will do something <laughs> with the two point five million, and you can have my thirty five thousand. And, and God bless. I was you. more just looking for advice on what I should do with my. Okay, okay. Go what, I, what I mean there is that there's a. Um, if I like really dunk on somebody on Twitter, right? Like I really like get my people like to give me 22,000 retweets because I like, you know, won a Twitter fight. Mm-hmm. I have made that person who I was arguing with unreachable for me. Mm-hmm. Like that typically is what happens, right? Like they are now like I have won, but I have also lost. And this is one reason why I don't do that many, de- like, true debate podcasts. Like, I've done some, and, like, I had one with Sam Harris that, you know, like, people paid a lot of attention to and whatever. Mm-hmm. But one reason I try not to do that, and even in that case, like, gave him a lot of off-ramps before we did it, is that, like, my experience of it is, like, debating's fun, and it's a performance, and, you know, like, I'm, I, I think I'm reasonably, I'm competent at it and have done fine in the ones I've been in. But you often lose the other person. Like they become more hostile to you, which certainly happened there over time. Um, and trying, I think it is really, really hard. I think people are tuned for a million reasons going to like the mythos we all grow up in, you know, in our society, like what it looks like in a movie when the hero wins, like every, like what, like the West Wing with its sort of like sharp rhetorical rejoinders that end the episode. I think we're used to winning feeling like, seeming like it will be an emotionally satisfying victory when it's often a very unemotionally satisfying relationship where you're accepting a lot of things you don't like to get some things you do. And something that like in my own career I've been trying to do is like hold up a little bit more of a torch for like almost transactional politics, you know, like just like the work, the sometimes frustrating work of politics. But I don't know. To me, this is the thing that I can't figure out. I think people love to feel fair-minded and cerebral and all these other things that, like, I actually think I've, like, particularly in some ways have been good at, like, creating those, those symbolisms and, and hopefully I back it up, but sometimes I fall short like anybody else. But the harder one for me is recognizing that sometimes what looks to you in the moment like winning is actually going to be losing and building a politics where people are willing to go through the, like, losing part first so they can actually have the unsatisfying winning that actually helps people. Mm-hmm. As opposed to going through the emotionally satisfying winning and then losing in a way that hurts people, that to me is a really central political challenge right now. Yeah, and it's all the more challenging when it doesn't just feel good to win, but you actually see your Twitter following grow, and that actually include in some sense increases your influence and power. Right? Although what you what that cycle locks you into is using that power and influence to exacerbate polarization. That's just what you wind up doing. But it's it's a just a tough incentive structure to beat, you know. Um I I've even seen people I won't name names who who clearly started out kind of in early Trump trying to be a voice of moderation and clarity and 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 they just surrendered to the temptation and I surrender too sometimes. It's hard. Um but uh you know, I, 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 I mean, the other thing, this is kind of a, a tangent, but sometimes you, you just think there is a group of people that needs to be discredited, you know, and, and you feel that strongly about it and you reflect on it and you still believe it. I feel that way about some voices in the foreign policy community and I am going to make some enemies, you know, I'm just going to be sufficiently harsh in my assessment of them that they're not going to like me. 
uh, I mean, I should try to have dialogue with him. I should try to sustain that, but um, that just may happen. So I guess this is just a further complication that sometimes in political affairs, you know, making enemies is arguably a justifiable thing to do. But but I think you would say that right now in American political history, you really should try to err on the side of building bridges for the good of the whole nation, right? I mean, that that would be... That would be your view. I don't even know. I, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure that actually this is going to sound weird. I, like, I'm not sure even that's what I mean by it is my view. I don't mean a kind of soft, like, don't make enemies or soft pedal your disagreements or, or something. Um, I, I'm just trying to think, right? I'm being inarticulate because, like, I have trouble articulating this. But, like, for instance, I think Donald Trump is a bad president. Um, I routinely tweet things that say I think he's a bad president. I mean, I think part of my job as a political analyst is to be honest about things that I think are happening. And, like, so I try to be honest about it. And I've also really tried to understand him and to understand the world around him and do that reporting and, and, and try to, like, figure out for me how he's a hero of his story. And he, I find to be, in some ways, like a particularly tough case for this because I think he's like one of the worst people I've ever seen temperamentally in politics or characterologically in politics, much more so than, you know, like I covered Mitt Romney very differently than I covered Donald Trump, even though I disagreed with him on many, many things. Um, that all said, I don't, I'm not telling people or even saying for myself to like just like constantly err on the side of building bridges. I think it's more that, um, given the way American politics is structured, you are not going to win most of the time without either changing the structure of it or um, building coalitions that are going to include a lot of people you don't really like. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I think there's a real issue on, we've been talking about Twitter here a lot and people will say, why are you guys talking so much about Twitter? Twitter isn't real life. One of the things that has happened is that political elites be they media elites or actual politicians, spend a lot of time on Twitter and before Twitter and ongoing with Twitter cable news, which has some of the same dynamics, actually. And the way to win in those spaces, to everything you're saying, is very different than the way to win in, say, Congress or even in elections. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly, if you're trying to win majorities in elections, right? Uh, I had a good conversation with Sean McElwee, who is a kind of progressive activist data guy and he was making this point that on twitter it prizes a kind of engagement where you'll get twenty five thousand retweets um as a politician for saying something really inflammatory and you never see all the people who looked in there like i'm not voting for that guy mm-hmm. like there actually is not a good mechanism for the people to to hear from the people you're losing well there's the ratio show there's the ratio, show but you know getting but that's different that's if you've offended them it's i, I mean more yeah, yeah, he means more true. like that's true You've said something that other Democrats are like, eh, like, I don't know. That makes me like, I'm not that, I'm not there on, say, like immigration or something. I'm not that right. far where you are on this. And so, like, I'm not going to fight you on it, but you're just not my guy. Um, uh, or, or my girl for that matter. And so I think that there's something, Jonathan Rausch talks a lot and has sort of like made in, in more recent years a real project, the, um, thinker at Brookings, um, and, and, and journalist of trying to like make an argument for machine politics and transactional politics. And I'm not sure I totally buy that, um, uh, all the way as far as he does, although I think there's a lot to it. But I think there's, there's something about recognizing that you can't, you don't win by beating people. Like you win by, um, 
not not even fully persuading them, but like bringing them into your circle enough that you guys can have not just a dialogue together, but a coalition together. Mm-hmm. It's why I really will say that for a lot of things I've not been impressed by with the Joe Biden campaign, and there have been a number of them, the way in which when he won the primary, instead of like having a bend the knee attitude towards the left, he said, like, I will create six issue-based task forces comprised of my people and Bernie Sanders' people, and we're going to see if we can change my personal agenda, not the abstract party platform, but my agenda hmm. to reflect that. Hmm. That was, I thought, a really brilliant maneuver. That was acting like a party leader, not like somebody who's trying to crush your... Like, he doesn't win by crushing the left. He wins by bringing them into his coalition, even if it is a productive, continuous disagreement. Hmm. And I think that capacity to see yourself in sort of productive continuous disagreement is really it's really difficult and important i mean for me continuously the healthiest of my political identities is journalist because like it allows me to like engage with the world in a curious way i have to understand people i can't just like beat them um Mm -hmm. and i don't know i just think there's something very hard you can hear that i'm hesitant here because i don't think i have this figured out but to me like this is the question like in a system where a lot of the incentives are towards polarizing behavior and to what you were just saying about like the foreign policy blob often the need for sharp disagreements and like like true rough analysis is very much there like like it's not just an incentive like a business incentive to polarization but an actual reality you're reflecting when you say things that are polarizing like when i accurately say donald trump is lying it is polarizing but it is also true um like how do you simultaneously act honestly in that world but also like not just become completely compromised by what has clearly become a toxic political system yeah well i I think the winning can be losing message is in a way um kind of empowered or or, you know it, it it's it's that much truer by virtue of kind of Donald Trump's uh, style and the nature of his his kind of political base, I, I mean, assuming you're on my side of the the argument, and 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 you 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 would like Trump to lose the next election at least, if you're if you're preaching to my particular choir, the the message that winning in the short term can be losing, I think Trump makes it a somewhat easier message to sell because it is a fact that he would like you to say things that make his followers hate you, right? I mean, you know, part of his specific narrative, and this is a narrative that Republicans have been cultivating at least since Dan Quayle, but part of his narrative is there are these coastal cosmopolitan elites who hold people like you in contempt. They think you're stupid, uneducated, uh, primitive, and so on. Um, And so... Every time you demonstrate, wh- whether in terms of what you actually say or in, or just via your attitude, just via the sarcastic nature of your dismissal of their views, every time you signal that you look down on them, you're doing him a kind of favor. Because, you know, one, one thing that emerges in your book and has been said uh, b- by others is that when you have fewer true swing voters and people have strong partisan alignments, winning election is a lot about getting the base out. And there's no better way to get the base out than to convince them that the other side hates them and, and you know, will work to their detriment out of that motivation. So I think, you know, there's this um, 
this Bible verse, it appears both in the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible, because when Paul says it, he is quoting the Hebrew Bible. He says it in the book of Romans. Uh, I mean, part of it is famous. It's, if your enemy is hungry, give him food. If your, if your enemy is thirsty, give him drink. That part's famous. What comes next is not. What, what comes next is, for by doing so, you will be pouring burning coals on his head or something like that. Uh, there are different interpretations of that. I take it to mean that sometimes, I mean, this isn't the only reason you should be charitable toward your enemies, but sometimes it has actual tactical advantages. And I guess I'd say that, uh, I think this is truer with Trump than it is with some, with some enemies, so to speak. I think there's, a, I think there's a lot to that and something that, among other things, something I talk about in the book is that the Democrats, for a bunch of reasons, operate under an electoral handicap Republicans don't. And something that is constantly a refrain in like liberal politics is why, why don't Democrats act like Republicans, right? Why, like everybody always believes the other side is like ruthlessly destroying their side and acting in a way their side never does. And Republicans believe this too, that like Democrats have like wrecked them and destroyed religion. And, but, but in this case, I'm just going to speak to the Democratic side. And one of the issues is that Republicans can win nationally with 46.1% of the two party vote and Democrats cannot. Like they just can't. Democrats don't just need 50 and they don't just need 50% plus one. They tend to need 52, 53. Um, I mentioned in the book a, um, electoral college study showing that in close popular vote majorities, Republicans are now expected to win even if they've lost that close majority 65% of the time because of the electoral college at the presidential level. So Democrats don't just need like to win. They need a coalition that includes by definition right of center voters and republicans by definition do not need a coalition that includes left of center voters mm-hmm. that's a very big strategic asymmetry between the two parties um i will also say and this is i think more an issue for the media and it's something i think about in my podcast and, and elsewhere there is a constant question um that the media i think does not take seriously where our primary, we thought our primary power was, did we cover something positively or negatively? Right? If we covered a politician, did we say that they were misstating the facts and, you know, being controversial or outrageous or something? Or did we say like, you know, something more positive? And something Trump has shown and others have shown is that's simply not true. Our primary power in the media, to the extent we have power, is amplifying things. We shine light. We, we take attention and direct it in a very crowded attentional space somewhere. And what Trump's big hack was, was he recognized if he just acted outrageously enough, confrontationally enough, and he talked about this all the way going back to the art, uh, the art of the deal, that he could get media coverage. He could squeeze everybody else out. And it just didn't really matter if that coverage was positive. He's willing to court negative coverage in a way that other politicians aren't because like they're restrained by shame or political incentives or something. But he's just like, yeah, I just want all the coverage. And if part of it is you hate me and call me a liar and call me a racist and a bigot and a fraud, that's fine because I'll just weaponize that back against you. Mm-hmm. And I think for the media, it's put us in a real trap, but it's not just him. I mean, we have a real tendency to cover... Um, Things that are sensational, people are, that are more outrageous, Twitter and social media have amp, have like accelerated this tendency for us. And it requires, I think, a lot of, um, my mindfulness to, to use the term and intentionality to ask, like, are we raising this person up because, um, 
because like that is a person people should be hearing from or the idea people should be hearing? Or is that just like in some ways like a lowest common denominator approach to coverage? I mean, mm-hmm. I'll say for instance, on, on my show, like on my podcast, one of the most common like audience requests is like to have on more people like for me to just debate, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'll constantly get emails or like, I really want to see this person taken down. Like that's a very common form of email for me. And like, I think you could do it. And I will like, as a rule, never have that person on. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll have people on who I disagree with and respect. Like I could not disagree with Rod Dreher more, um, who's at the American conservative and like, I would say is sort of a theocrat, um, basically, uh, and, you know, is a author of the Benedict, the Benedict option and, you know, is a very sort of intense form of religious conservative. But he's someone who I think it's important to understand. I, um, think his view of the world has things to teach us. And like, I will have him on not to take him apart, but because like, I need to know what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are a lot of other, like people both in his lane and, and others where it would just be like, it would be about a fight and like, it would be good ratings for me, right? Like yeah. it would be good podcast downloads to like really go to war with them. Um, mm-hmm. But, and it's not like claiming any virtue on, on my own part. It's just like a, it's just a, I guess a programming decision. But, um, but that's where I think like you really have to ask. Um, and I feel this way all the time in terms of like what I'm writing about. Like it, it's, easy as a political i do a lot of like political column writing and you can write about the worst thing somebody said that day um which tends to be really easy and people are already talking about it so you already fit into a social media conversation that helps article distribution you know or it takes a lot more work to like summon something up right to like find something better to shine light on or to like do the reporting or whatever and some days by the way like i go the the other way on this, or like, I feel like I have something to say about the controversy of the day, but I think this is like a real, I think this question, particularly for the media of having more rigorous internal frameworks for what we amplify and when, and what we consider newsworthy and why is really important because I think we used to think that, um, it was just how we covered something that mattered. And so the question of what we covered was relatively neutral and that's clearly wrong. If it was ever right, it's clearly wrong now, but having a sort of rigorous framework for what we choose to cover that puts us in an awkward position because we're admitting to what some people would call bias, what I would just call like an obvious form of judgment that is always operating. But like right now, because it operates implicitly, I think it often operates quite poorly. And again, I do not exempt myself from any of this. These are things I'm struggling with, not things I've solved, but they feel really important to me. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. And I know the feeling of getting pressure from people to take somebody down. Or if you have somebody on, getting blowback because you didn't sufficiently challenge, you know, everything they said. Uh, and, um, you know, I had Kate Mann on and people are like, why didn't you give her a lecture on evolutionary psychology? And I'm like, I was genuinely trying to understand exactly what her perspective is. You know, it's like <clears throat> that's how I wanted to spend the time. Um, and uh, it's, you know, I think your show, uh, it, it shows in your show that that very much that that's what you're. I I have even had the feeling listening to your show like if I were Ezra I'd 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 give him or her a little more pushback right now but uh I think it's a good thing that you're not erring on that side um 
Also, it's just it's well. Just look, too- in any any given one, we can always get it wrong, right? Like maybe in those ones, I, if you thought it, I probably should have, right? But no, no, I just want no. me it's, not it's to make the just not to make the issue my show. It's more just like throughout the media, like this question to like what you were saying earlier with Trump. I I think a really interesting question is what if instead of covering Trump more when he was more aberrant, the standard for Trump to get the coverage mm-hmm. he wanted was he was that he was more normal. Mm-hmm. Right, like we thought, like when we when Trump does something crazy, we cover it all the all over, right. and when right. he kind of just like acts generic, we don't cover right. it almost at all. Right. I, I give the example. I think I give it. I don't give it in the book. Actually, I give this in a piece I wrote a while back. But like when Trump made the super racist comments towards the squad, it was like send her back and and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened at this like Made in America um, thing he did on the White House lawn, and there's like all this sort of normalcy and random stuff he was saying that got no coverage, and then like the worst thing he said did. And of course, like I covered that too and think that was newsworthy, but cumulatively, do any of us really feel it's working to let Trump have a free pass to coverage as long as he said something racist? Like, is that making him less racist or is it making, so there's more racism out in the sphere because you're constantly signal boosting him or his, like nobody covers his insult sleepy Joe because like nobody cares. It's stupid, but they cover Pocahontas because it's kind of offensive. It's good. No, not kind of. It is offensive, but that just means that it got way more into the stream in a way. So I don't know. I I don't have an answer because like, it's not like I would say like, let's suppress coverage of Trump being a racist, but I think we at least need to like recognize that that is now being turned on us right like he figured that out yeah it's a challenge because you know on the one hand once you start ignoring things that you you initially considered completely outrageous for any president to do you yep. are quote normalizing it uh i guess and and, yep. and and so he's winning the norms game is this becoming now a norm that other presidents can uh, may use as a as a guidepost at the same time i totally agree that look at some point a, uh, you know, the man bites dog story becomes the dog bites man story. When Trump first did all this stuff, it was a man bites dog story. It was, it was sufficiently weird that you, uh, on grounds of sheer journalistic, good journalistic practice, you had to note it. But it's no longer surprising. So I try to confine my own, you know, outrage and my own, uh, kind of amplification of things to, I guess the more, what I consider the most dangerous, the more dangerous norm violations, if it, even if it's not the first time he's done it. Now, now the, the version of this that I think is an easy call is I wish people would quit finding the most outrageous thing done anywhere by any Trump supporter in America that you had never heard of before and put it all over social media. There's always going to be one person in America doing something outrageous. And they may be a Trump supporter. They may be a Biden supporter. They may be a Bernie supporter. But it's like, I just don't think you're helping things by giving them, you know, because the people on the team that hates their team wants to see them as typical. And they want to publicize, they want to convey that idea, they want to share it. Um, and, but they're, they're so often not typical. And I just wish we'd get better at ignoring those people. I mean, I think that I always feel this way about the college campus stuff where it's like some kid on some campus that right. you've never heard of or thought about has done something and, and free speech. And I always, I'm like, Something will tell you a lot about anybody, including me, right? But just about anything. When people are covering a movement, are they covering the best of it? Are they covering the bulk of it? 
or are they looking for the worst of it? And that will basically tell you more about their coverage than anything else. Right. Um, like, are you looking, you know, like there are people who covered, um, really anything. I mean, me too, college can't like anything. Um, there are people who are trying to like cover the whole thing. There are people who are like looking for the best arguments of the thing. And then there are people who are looking for the worst to discredit it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying to some degree that it's not valuable sometimes to read the worst of a thing or, um, and sometimes the worst of the thing becomes the mainstream of it. That's how I kind of feel about Trumpism and the Republican party. I don't think it's the only strain in there, but mm-hmm. I thought it was many cases, a worst strain of there. I think it became the bulk of it, not only because it was so powerful, though it always was powerful, but also because it got the most coverage. I mean, I make this argument explicitly in the book with a lot of, I think, empirical evidence that Trump used media dominance to win the primary. But nevertheless, like it's now become, I think, the bulk of the Republican Party. You can't ignore Trumpism um, or, or what it represents. But just like as a heuristic, right, you know, are like I always think of this when I read some like the political correctness coverage. Like I think, like everybody else, that some things college kids do are dumb, and I think, like everybody else, thinks that like sometimes political correctness goes too far. And I also think that um, in general, like what that like broadly understood movement is doing is good. Like I agree with its like its what it is primarily doing in terms of trying to get people like spoken of in ways that represent them better and represented in places of power and like treated with more dignity. And like, I think excesses are a problem, but I don't know of movements without them. That doesn't mean you explain them away, but it does like it, I think like helps you orient a little bit. Um, like when you are looking for coverage of something, are you looking to understand it? Are you looking to like feel good about how bad it is, which you already yeah. believe. And, and that can tell you something, but you know, like that gets us all back into motivated cognition and identity. It, it can, you can, you can end up a snake eating your own tail and all this stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, I, you know, people should definitely read your book. Um, there's a lot here. We haven't talked about, including, ideas about um you know the nature of of kind of white identity politics i would say in your analysis there's some good news and some bad news like uh, it's good news that it doesn't seem in your mind in your in your assessment doesn't seem to entail as much hostility toward uh non-white groups as people might assume uh right if that's uh, i i would say not my assessment that's in some of the studies i'm using in that i think there's People should read that. That's a that's a yeah, that's, complicated there's, there's little piece of it all. That effect. That's good. Yes. If we had time, I'd get into the weeds about uh, the 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 how you know how the 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 forces that empowered uh, the white identity. In your view, there there are questions I'd ask and so on. But anyway, very rich book. Why we're polarized. Congratulations. Um, and you know, I've really enjoyed this. Ezra, one, it, it's been kind of, uh, nostalgic because, uh, I'm sure people noticed in the, in the, uh, who people, people who watch this as opposed to listen, in the early part of this especially, your video was freezing up a lot. Uh, I, I think if we've done what we think we've done, that, uh, that will not be the case for the later part of the conversation. But one, one adaptation we made was that we have not been able to see each other for the last, uh, 45 minutes or so, and that just harkens back to early blogging heads days when before, before broad bandwidth, you, they, we could never see each other, and uh, it was kind of a different experience. But this is the first time I've done that in a long time, so thanks for that flashback. Um, 
Of course. I, I found it easier, actually. It's less to keep track of. You can relax into the conversation better. In some ways, it is, actually. It's easier to focus on what you're saying um, if you're not reflexively looking for the visual feedback in some ways. I guess, I guess that puts me in danger of getting off on long soliloquies, so I may be guilty of that. But anyway, th- thanks so much. This is a lot of fun, Ezra, and uh, we'll uh, hope to talk to you down the road. Thank you. It was a pleasure.